Good morning. I'm Josh, uh, married to Rachel. We've got a toddler called Naomi. Been part of Grace Church for six years, and it's my privilege to speak to you this morning um, from the Bible on the topic of integrity. Integrity matters. Integrity can topple a prime minister. It can determine a future prime minister. It can derail pastors and CEOs. It can make or break the churches and businesses that they run. Integrity will determine the quality of your relationships, the closeness of your friendships, the progression of your career. Integrity matters. And integrity will determine whether our church community is a place full of judgment or sympathy and love, a place where people have to be fake and feel isolated, or a place where people can be authentic and find connection. Integrity matters. And we're looking at this because we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, and we've arrived at chapter 23, which is Jesus' most controversial sermon. In it, he publicly and aggressively attacks some leaders. Now, uh, these leaders, uh, they've been clashing with Jesus for a while. It's a whole bunch of different leaders, uh, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, elders, teachers of the law. They keep popping up. They're in all different contexts, some leaders in more informally in movements and networks, some more formally in committees and organizations, uh, and all sorts of different levels and types of influence, political influence, religious influence, legal influence, influence over public opinion. But despite the differences, they have one thing in common. They clash with Jesus. There's a constant back and forth right from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So uh, Jesus, uh, they, they come along and they criticize Jesus and say, Jesus, you and your disciples are acting in an immoral way, mixing with the wrong kind of people, breaking the Sabbath laws. And Jesus responds and says, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You have missed the point of God's law, the very law that you're trying to teach others. Uh, and then Jesus is doing all sorts of different miracles, including casting out demons. And they say, the only reason that Jesus can cast out demons is because he is on Team Demon and has Beelzebub, Prince of Demons, on his speed dial. And then, uh, and then they come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, give us a sign to prove who you are. Because apparently, making the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, isn't enough. And Jesus responds that they are evil. So there's been a few clashes along the way. But the last couple of days, the clashes have intensified. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds have gone wild. They're celebrating, saying, this Jesus, he is our promised king. He's the Messiah. And then Jesus marches into the temple and declares, this house of prayer has been turned into a den of thieves. And he flips over the tables where the market stalls, scatters money everywhere. And the leaders are indignant. They say, who do you think you are? What gives you any right to be doing this kind of thing? And then Jesus, uh, Jesus tells some stories very publicly where the punchline is that the leaders are corrupt. And then these leaders send different groups of people to try and trap 
Jesus says they tried to trap him with his words. So they ask a question designed to trip him up. He says they test him. The only other person recorded as testing Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is the devil. Question after question after question. And finally, we get to this controversial sermon. So let's read. It's Matthew chapter 23. And this is how Jesus begins. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honors at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. And then fast forwarding to verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will yet let those enter who are trying to. Jesus then continues this scathing sermon, and he calls these leaders snakes, murderers, and hypocrites. Six times he uses the phrase, woe to you, you hypocrites. Shame on you, you hypocrites. You pathetic hypocrites. You miserable hypocrites. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Integrity matters to Jesus. He attacks these leaders because they don't have integrity. If you are a Christian, you need to have integrity. If you're investigating Christianity and finding out what does Jesus call of his followers, Jesus wants his followers to have integrity. So, two questions. How do you know you've got integrity? And how can you live with integrity? How do you know if you have integrity? Well, you don't look at someone's position or their level of knowledge. Have a look again at uh, verse 2. He said to the crowds and disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Now, generations earlier, God had given his law through Moses the prophet who taught the people. And as the generations went on, the Pharisees have become the official teachers of Moses' law, of God's law. And in fact, the synagogues used to have a stone seat at the front where the authoritative teachers, these guys, used to sit, and it was called Moses' seat. They had a position of authority. And actually, like Jesus says, you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Some of the things that these people are teaching are good and true and should be followed because they are quoting and mentioning the law that God has given. But this position of authority does not mean they have integrity nor does the knowledge that they have. Integrity is found somewhere else. If we rewind towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 
we get to his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, he's already started chipping away at the leaders here. And look what he says in Matthew chapter 7 about false prophets, people who claim to be speaking for God, false teachers. He tells us how we can spot them. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Okay, time for a little game. I like to call this game, what's that fruit and where does it come from? Here's how it works. Uh, it is an original game. TV rights are available. I personally think it would be a good match for Stephen Mulhern on ITV, but I'm open to other offers. I'm going to pull out a fruit from the box, and I'm going to say, what's that fruit? And you, in your loudest and most enthusiastic voices, are going to shout the name of the fruit. Then I'm going to say, where does it come from? And you, in your most enthusiastic and loudest voices, are going to tell me where it comes from. And by the way, for that question, I don't want a place because I know there's some clever person who's going to be going, oh, it's from Sainsbury's. <laughs> or some posh clever person who's going to be going, oh, it's from Waitrose. And I don't want a country either, okay? I'll give you a clue. I want a plant. Got it? Right. First one. Here we go. What's that fruit? Banana. Very good. Where does it come from? Banana tree. Banana tree. 100% so far. Doing well. My personal favorite, by the way. Um, I'm a primary teacher, if you didn't guess from this game. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, a banana, I used to eat a daily banana, and there was one school where some of the kids, instead of calling me Mr. Donigani, started calling me Mr. Banani. Anyway, <laughs> next one, here we go. What's that fruit? Apple. Where does it come from? Apple. Hey, you guys are good. <laughs> What's that fruit? Oh, <laughs> we'll go with orange. Where's it come from? Last one. This is the boss level. You ready? What's that fruit? Avocado. Where does it come from? It is an avocado tree. I did have to Google it. <laughs> Very good. Now, I haven't fact-checked those answers, but we know where fruit comes from. Here's what Jesus is saying. Bananas come from banana trees. Apples come from apple trees. Oranges come from orange trees. Avocados come from avocado trees. Good fruit comes from good trees. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. Fruit comes from the nature of the tree. Your outward actions come from your inner nature. What you do comes from who you are. Good actions from a good nature bad actions from a bad nature. What you do comes from who you are. And this is what Jesus clashes with the leaders. A lot of the clashes have been about. So in the midst of uh, this time when he's 
having this big clash in Jerusalem. He's just flipped the table. He actually goes outside of the city and stays overnight there. And on the way back in, this is what happens. Uh, This is Matthew 21. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry, right? It's breakfast time, feeling a bit peckish. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it. Perfect drive-through on the way back into the city, pop over, bit of mashed fig sandwich for breakfast, sorted. He went up to it, but found nothing except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Now, if you read that story out of context, it just looks like Jesus got really hangry. (laughs) And then he's like, you know, when Superman gets mad and punches a wall and causes chaos, well, Jesus, because he's got miraculous power, when he gets angry, curses a tree and withers. But it's an acted parable because Jesus is criticizing these leaders for having no fruit, for their lives, what they do, not showing the fruit that it should. And in fact, um, a little bit later, he then tells those stories where the punchline is the leader's corrupt. Uh, let's look at the end of um, the one in Matthew 21, verse 43. The end of the story says this, therefore, I tell you, Jesus speaking to the leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Jesus criticizes these leaders because their lives do not show the fruit that it should. They are not acting the way that they should. They do not have integrity. How do you know you have integrity? You look at what you do. Now, this is really important when you're thinking which voices you will allow to shape your life, which podcasts you'll listen to, books you'll read, sermons you'll watch, thinkers you'll follow, both religious and non-religious. Look at what someone does. Look at their fruit. Do they have integrity? Don't look at their position. Oh, they've, they've uh, got loads of followers. Oh, they've got a big church. Oh, they're a pastor. Don't look at their knowledge. Oh, three degrees. Oh, they can quote the New Testament in Greek. No, look at the fruit of their lives. How do they relate to people? What do they do? How do they act? And if you want to know if you have integrity, look at what you do. So if you think you're generous, okay, well, look at your bank statement. Where does your money actually go? How much do you actually spend on yourself versus other people? Are you buying things that are necessary or things that are luxuries? Or if you think, okay, well, um, I'm a a person who really has self-control. Okay, well, what about how you use your phone? Why not download one of those apps that tells you how much time you spend on all the different apps. I did that, and it was scary. Gives you a really objective way. Don't don't look at what you think about yourself. Look at what you do. Or you say, okay, oh, I trust God. Well, how do you know if you really trust God? You look at your actions, current problems, issues in your life. Have you prayed about them? How much have you prayed about them? Have you spent so much time doing rather than praying and depending on God? To know if you have integrity, look at what you do. Okay, but how can we live with integrity? Let's see what Jesus says. Back to chapter 3, verse 3, this is what he says. 
The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Practice what you preach. This is the origin of that phrase, which is kind of quite common in our culture. And everywhere we look, we see people not practicing what they preach. Now, sometimes that makes people laugh. So there was an influencer who got in trouble with their brand partner because they posted, oh, everyone needs to buy the new Samsung Galaxy, superior phone, amazing picture quality, amazing battery life. But then Twitter automatically detects what has posted the message. So underneath it said, posted by Twitter for iPhone. Practice what you preach. Sometimes it causes outrage, like politicians banning gatherings and then having them. Sometimes people not practicing what they preach is on a large scale. A nation signing a treaty to protect grain exports out of a country in war and then bombing a port the next day. And not practicing what we preach affects us on a personal level. When the people around us do it and when we do it ourselves. Practice what you preach. Focus on your own fruit before telling others the kind of fruit they should be growing. Focus on what you should do before telling others what they should be doing. And we're going to have to put effort into doing this because it's usually easier to preach than to practice. It's, it's easier to tell someone else what they should be doing than to actually do the thing ourselves. So we're going to have to work at this because our tendency will probably be towards preaching rather than practicing. So maybe you look around and you, at church and you think, oh, I wish, I wish church was more welcoming. I'm not saying that we're not. I'm just saying maybe you think that, oh, people should be a bit more friendly. People should talk to people. Well, why don't you? Join the welcome team. And actually, welcome isn't just the response to the other welcome team. So after the service, look out for someone who looks new, someone you don't recognize. Go and talk to them. Go and talk to someone who's uh, not that you don't know well before you talk to the people that you do know well. Do something about it. Um, or maybe you're in a, a job where there's just a really negative atmosphere and you feel really undervalued and really underappreciated. And you think, people should just value me for what I do. People should be more positive. Well, be the change. Go and, go and find someone. Make a deliberate effort next time you go in. Hey, Really appreciate what you do. Thank you. That really helps us out. Oh, well done. I can see what you're doing. Really helpful. Be the change that you want to see. Uh, we're going to have to be practical about this. So maybe there's things in your mind right now that you know that you should be doing. Write them down. Put it on a post-it note where you'll see it. Stick it on your steering wheel. Put it on your mirror. Put a, a reminder on your phone. Go and tell someone after this. It's so much easier if you tell someone and say, hey, can you remind me of this? Can you check in with me how this is going? We're going to have to work at this. Practice what you preach. Focus on what you should be doing before telling others what they should be doing. Now, we do actually want to be telling others what to do to some extent. The Bible is very clear that part of our responsibility as a community is to challenge each other and um, correct each other. 
But if we all have the attitude where we're focused on ourselves first, that will transform the way that we challenge each other. It will be the difference between, like Jesus says, putting burdens that crush people, where we walk around going, oh, there's all these expectations, I should do this, I should do that, and we walk feeling crushed. And instead, we will be a community which challenges each other, but does in a way that shares burdens, that says, hey, I struggle too. Can I help you with this? What can we do? It'll be the difference between being a judgmental community that just puts these demands on each other and being a sympathetic community. Because when we challenge others, we will be very aware that we too have our own struggles. It will be the difference between us all walking around feeling like we're not the people that we should be and no one's out to help us. And walking around knowing we're all in the same boat, we're all struggling, but together we are growing and being changed. Practice what you preach. Okay, second. How do you live with integrity? Don't fake your fruit. Have a look at verse five to seven. Everything they do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garment long. So phylacteries are little leather boxes that contain a couple of passages from the Bible. And it actually comes from, there's a verse um, in Exodus and Deuteronomy where God tells his people to tie his words on their minds and their hearts and their arms and their foreheads. Now, originally that passage was probably meant metaphorically, but they've, they've taken it and they said, actually, we want to take this seriously. Why not actually make some little leather boxes? And so they do, and you can still buy them today. Some Jews still use them. They cost a couple of hundred pounds. But here's what the, the, these leaders were doing. They were making their boxes extra big. Because, well, these boxes show that you are committed to obeying God out of response for what he's done. And so they're like, well, check how much I obey God. Check out how much how I remember what he's done for me. Um, and the, the tassels on the garment, um, similarly, God had uh, reminded them to sew a blue thread into the corner of their clothes as a very practical reminder throughout their day-to-day lives of what God has done. And so they went, oh, great. Nice thick thread. A few extra stitches. Look how much I remember. They're trying to be seen. They're trying to look good. And then uh, the, the, they want the VIP seats at banquets. I don't quite know what that means in first century context. In my head, it's the ones next to the vending machines and the, the ice cream machines. But they want the VIP seats there. They even want the VIP seats in the synagogue. Okay, the ones at the front where they can kind of see everyone else and everyone can see them. They want to look good. Don't we all do that sometimes? We want to look good. Yeah, it's so easy in a church context. Everyone's singing and you kind of look around, you're like, oh, they look like they're into this more than me. Or maybe I should close my eyes. That makes me look a bit more committed. Oh, that person's got their hands up. Oh, hang on. Or, um, or praying. Do you ever do that thing where you practice your prayer before you say it in a group context? Now, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing to do because it's, you know, think before you speak and if you're going to leave people. But that can come from a place of being more concerned about how other people are going to perceive you than actually praying the prayer. 
Um, or someone at home group says, oh, what have you been reading in your Bible recently? And you go, oh, Bible, recently. I read, oh, does that postcard I've got on my wall with a verse on, does that count? Oh, yeah, Philippians. Why do, why do we do that? And then even on a more deeper level, often we, we can kind of bury things that are going on in our lives that we know shouldn't be. Or maybe it's just we just avoid them and we don't have the courage to bring them up and really do life honestly with each other. Why do we do that? Well, I think often we want to look good. It's a bit like sellotaping a banana to a dead branch and saying, look, it's a banana tree. Look, healthy fruit must be a healthy tree. And we do that to ourselves. We put on the fruit, the good actions on the outside, because we're trying to convince people and convince ourselves we are good people. I think often we're scared of who we are. We're scared that deep inside there is part of us, part of our nature that is bad and rotten. Maybe we're scared to face it. Maybe we're scared of how people will react if they really see. I started uh, a new job in September. Um, it was a new role, hadn't done before, and I had a serious sense of imposter syndrome for months. This kind of lurking fear that they had employed me, like not realizing what they were doing, and that they were going to find out who I really was and fire me because I didn't know what I was doing. But don't we live life with imposter syndrome, where we walk around thinking, people really knew who I was. They wouldn't lie to me. They wouldn't want to associate with me. Sometimes we can try to look good because we're scared of who we are. But here's the good news. Jesus knows exactly who you are. Jesus knows your flaws. Jesus knows your failures. He knows your deliberate, selfish decisions. He knows the secrets that you carry, the shame that you bury. He knows the issues that you ignore or play down or try to sugarcoat when you show them to others. He knows the incidents that you try to forget, the addictions that you can't shake. He knows the struggles that you've been too scared to share. He knows you perfectly. He knows the darkest corner of the labyrinth of your heart, and he still loves you. He loves you as you are because he is good, and he changes who you are. On the cross, when Jesus dies, he absorbs the rotten and the bad parts of our nature, and he takes them on himself. And he rises to life, and he gives us his good, healthy nature. And he fills us with his spirit so that that new, good, and healthy nature inside of us can produce fruit. Jesus changes who you are, and he's changing what you do. So we don't need to pretend to be good. You know, if we can cling on to that reality by the fingertips of faith that Jesus knows us, he loves us, 
he has changed us and is changing us, then we will have the courage to be honest with each other. And that will open the door to powerful change in your life. Because Jesus, in his wisdom, has determined that church community is the way that transformation comes. We don't have to pretend to look good because Jesus knows who we are. And as that happens, our community will change from a bunch of people walking around as fakes, trying to look better than we are, and you can be authentic, people who can know the real you. Instead of walking around in isolation, feeling like no one knows what you're really going through, and if they did, people would reject you, you can be part of a community where people accept you. Because we all say, yes, we're all works in progress. We've all got parts of us that are rotten and bad. But we know that Jesus has changed who we are. And he is changing what we do. You know if you have integrity by looking at what you do. And you can live with integrity by practicing what you preach and not faking your fruit. By taking responsibility and thinking, focusing first on what you should be doing rather than telling others what to do. And by living an honest life, because Jesus has changed you, and Jesus is changing.